In the past year, the number of asylum seekers living in state-provided accommodation has more than doubled. Right now, there are about 15,000 people who are seeking asylum, staying in direct provision centres and emergency accommodation. This is in addition to the 35,000 refugees from Ukraine who have arrived in Ireland since March and are also being accommodated by the state. There's been several calls that have gone out to, to people to house refugees, and these calls have gone out to businesses, hotels, etc., uh, to house refugees in return for payment. And the government has got a pretty healthy response. A lot of people have come forward offering their premises, but in the overwhelming majority of the cases, these people have said that they just want Ukrainians, they don't want direct provision applicants. As a result, many of these people seeking protection are staying in emergency accommodation in places like hotels, sports halls and warehouses. Some are now even staying in tents. Our team at NASC are getting phone calls from people who are sleeping on floors, uh, sleeping on chairs. One gentleman had had a stroke some months previously and was on, I think, what he described as an air mattress on a damp floor. It, it's bad. With no solution to this accommodation crisis on the horizon, there is little hope that the government's target of ending direct provision by 2024 will be met. I'm Sarah Hapalak and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how Ireland's asylum and refugee accommodation system has reached breaking point. Conor Gallagher, you're the Irish Times crime correspondent, but you've also been writing recently about the anger and sometimes violence seen in communities where temporary accommodation for asylum seekers has opened. Now, last month we saw it happen in Finglas, where 45 international protection applicants or asylum seekers, as they're more commonly known, were moved into crisis accommodation in that area. Can you explain what happened there? That's right. So a group of uh, asylum seekers from a variety of different countries were moved into a warehouse type structure in on North Road in Finglas. Um, this had been used as a testing, a COVID testing centre during the pandemic. It had previously been a bargain town and had previously been a kind of a, an amusement centre. So not ideal a place to, to accommodate people, but it kind of shows the pressure, pressure they're under. So they had to move these people in. Immediately, locals kind of got wind of it. Um, I think you know the beds were spotted being moving in, and um, the, you know it went around online that this is what was happening, and people started gathering and protesting, and filming um, the asylum seekers as well. On Tuesday night, a very small group of people uh, forced their way into the centre and were filming residents and uh, making remarks, which left the staff and residents feeling somewhat intimidated. You know, and saying things like, you know, we're going to come back. The following day, there was another incident where Gardaí were called out to deal with a public order uh, offence on the grounds of the premises. And then the next night, a person with an iron bar broke in the windows of the centre from the outside, which obviously left uh, people inside feeling very um, unsafe. So after that, the decision was made by department officials to move to move the asylum seekers out of there uh, immediately. On the Friday morning, they were put into buses and brought back to City West Centre from where they came from. And uh, some of the officials believed that they'd actually been followed by um, at least one car back to the centre. 
so a really worrying incident and a a, a, a kind of a sign about uh, of how bad these things can get. Connor, do we know who was involved in these intimidation attempts in Finglas? So, no, we don't know uh, exactly who was involved. We know there were small groups and that there's no evidence to say that the people protesting outside during the day were linked to these incidents. Um, but it, I have been told that there uh, are suspicions that there is a criminal element involved, that one organised crime group was um, involved in orchestrating some of the uh, intimidation in a bit to kind of kind of like a PR exercise to curry favour with the local community and show that they're, you know, the defenders of that part of Inglis. How much were far-right activists involved in this pushback against the accommodation of asylum seekers in Finglas? Do we know? Yet yeah, they were there. The far-right were there. As soon as these concerns start circulating online, uh, these far-right groups, organised groups and individuals on their own will descend on the place and try to exploit local fears will spread misinformation will you know make their videos outside and 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 fingless was no different uh you know we had at least one person uh you know he's a long time kind of far right person making very threatening comments on a video he filmed outside the center and of course you had like the more organized groups well you certainly had the national party there the kind of anti-migrant group were using the this issue to organise around to try and recruit people and try and spread their message. It's worth mentioning there was also pushback against asylum seekers who were placed in a hotel in Kinnegad in Westmeath nearly two months ago in July. Um, it was reported at the time that they had been moved into the town without consultation and there were other reports that some of these asylum seekers were subsequently subjected to an online smear campaign which falsely accused them of sexual misconduct. We also know that department officials who travelled to the town to meet with representatives and discuss the accommodation situation face serious vitriol and pushback. Do you think, Connor, there was far-right involvement there? And have there been any other incidents like that during recent months? Yeah, there was far-right involvement there. You know, a lot of the same people who were involved in the Finglas thing were, were in Kinnegad. But it's important to point out that, you know, from talking to people involved in that, that the far-right aren't the, the driving force here. The anger was coming mainly from local people. Some of them were um, repeating kind of far right talking points, which have been common in become common in recent years. You know that asylum seekers pose a, a threat. You know that they're they're going to be a danger to women, that sort of thing. You know, so we see those coming up again and again and again. But it seems to be that the the you know these far right groups, their message has gone mainstream to the extent that you know, they don't even have to do that much organising here anymore. So there was a huge amount of vitriol and anger and frustration in Kinnegad. It kind of shows, illustrates the point of the disparity between of attitudes between two uh, Ukrainians and uh, asylum seeker applicants in that uh, a decision was made to move out the asylum seekers from the Kinnegad Hotel and an alternative accommodation was found for them and it suited the department to move in Ukrainian refugees uh, to the hotel and most, if not all, of the pushback has disappeared. 
Fiona Hurley is the chief executive of NASC, the Migrant and Refugee Rights Centre in Cork City. Fiona, the number of asylum seekers arriving into Ireland has surged in recent months. There's now about 15,000 people in state accommodation, compared to around 7,000 people this time last year. What is behind this increase? It's hard to point to kind of any one individual factor. So while there has been an increase in the numbers coming to Ireland, you have to take down the context of you know, borders largely being closed for the last two years. Um, we're also seeing record numbers of people displaced worldwide. We've reached a record 100 million people forcibly displaced around the world. So there are increased waves of violence across um, Ethiopia, Myanmar, um, Nigeria. People will be very familiar with Afghanistan as well. But we also need to remember that people who are refugees can flee for a number of reasons and not just conflict or war. They might be fleeing on the basis of um, gender-based violence or persecution because of their uh, sexual orientation or because they're being persecuted because they're a member of a political party. Um, we also need to remember as well that Ireland isn't isn't receiving disproportionately more international protection applicants than our EU counterparts. So last year, about five countries in Europe received three quarters of all applications for international protection. So it was Germany, France, Spain, Italy and Austria. So, you know, certainly I think there is kind of within Ireland sometimes this feeling that we are taking a huge number of people in when actually statistically that's not necessarily the case. But in addition to those who have started coming the increase over the past year, there are now around, well, there's nearly 50,000 Ukrainians here in total, but there's around 35,000 Ukrainian refugees who are being accommodated by the Irish state. And it's worth noting that there appears to be quite a difference between the level of supports offered to Ukrainian refugees and then asylum seekers who come from other countries fleeing war, persecution and the many other reasons that you've mentioned. Are we seeing a two-tiered asylum system being created in this country? A very technical answer to that question is that the Ukrainians aren't in our asylum process because they are what's called beneficiaries of temporary protection or temporary protection beneficiaries. So at the outset of the conflict in Ukraine, the EU member states made a decision to that they would use the temporary protection directive for Ukrainians fleeing war. So when Ukrainians arrive in Ireland, they are given a permission to stay in Ireland for a period of one year. Uh, and this means that they have access to services that people in our international protection process who don't have that same type of status. Um, so things like immediate access to the labour market, or they have access to things like child benefit if they've got children. But what we've seen with the Ukrainians coming in is that there are kind of multiple examples of how of kind of good practices that we should be using, um, sweeping away some bureaucracy, like, for example, right to work. The Catherine Day report recommended that the right to work be granted after three months to people in the international protection process. The state kind of compromised and went from nine months down to six months. But actually, you know, looking at granting the right to work to Ukrainians, we've seen the difference that it makes for people to have their own economic independence. And that's something we should be looking at providing as well to international protection applicants. And then on top of all this, we have this crisis accommodation system, which has been becoming worse and worse during the summer months and where some new arrivals into this country are actually now staying in tents in places like Gormanstown and Athlone. Now, the government has said during the summer that the use of these tents is only temporary and it's an exceptional response to an exceptional situation. But 
Don't we have a history in this country of holding on to temporary housing measures well into the long term? I mean, direct provision, which launched in the year 2000, that was initially a temporary plan, right? Absolutely. It's a huge concern where, you know, when the the tented accommodation was introduced, they're saying it'll be gone by October. But we're actually seeing very little sign of long term planning that will allow that tented accommodation to be gone by October. And it's really beyond disappointing um, that 18 months after the white paper on ending direct provision, we're not talking about closing emergency centres as we expected to. We're talking about tents. With this accommodation crisis, what does this all mean when it comes to that goal of ending direct provision by 2024? 2024 now seems like a very unrealistic target, right? I think we've got to be frank that 2024 isn't realistic. Um, The Department of Children has this mammoth task in front of them faced with providing accommodation solutions for people in, in international protection system and for Ukrainians. And this isn't a body that came with a huge degree of expertise in accommodation or housing. We're also in danger, I think, of maybe overlooking um, the responsibility of other agencies as well. So the Department of Justice has a role here in fixing the international protection process. You know, there are long delays still in getting interviews and decisions. Um, early legal advice um, still isn't, pl- in, isn't in place for people who are applying so they can actually make strong applications in the first case and they you know receive proper advice before they get to interview or appeal stage as well the department of justice is waiting until like october 2022 to review their own procedures and backlogs so you know it is really imperative that the state comes out and and publishes a new plan now and says look what a realistic timeline would be because there are people in centers now and frankly the conditions are as bad as they've ever been what do we know about the conditions in these hotels, in these community centres, in these sports halls where people are staying? So our team at NASC are getting phone calls from people who are sleeping on floors, um, who are uh, sleeping on chairs, who have medical conditions. Um, and it seems like they're not people aren't being triaged properly. One gentleman had had, had a stroke some months previously and was on, I think, what he described as an air mattress on a damp floor. Um, other people spoke of just the difficulty of being able to sleep when you're sharing, you know, accommodation with 50 other people. So again, it's, it's bad, you know, in, in short, and there's really no way to sugarcoat that. What has the Department of Children and Equality, which is the department responsible for housing both Ukrainian refugees and asylum seekers through its International Protection Accommodation Services, what have they told you about the accommodation situation? Why is it so hard for them to find housing? So it was described to me by by my sources in very stark terms. And people went so far as to say, you know, the, the Ukrainian refugee issue is getting a lot of attention and a lot of press but the actual the, the difficulties in housing asylum seekers are far greater um, and that's despite there being far more Ukrainian refugees coming in than asylum seekers so you know they're really scrambling around on a nearly daily basis to find places 
just temporary places to put uh, asylum seekers in while you know more permanent accommodation is found um so it's led to a very very difficult uh, situation officials uh, describe a kind of a sense of exhaustion and somewhat low morale as as they try just to find places uh, and, and sometimes they have to put up with less than ideal places as well such as you know a warehouse in Finglas that used to be a testing centre and used to be a bargain store and it also gives them less time to consult with communities and less time to prepare these uh, accommodation uh, locations. But there are still people and organisations who are more than willing to provide housing to Ukrainian refugees as you've referenced. So why then are people saying no to asylum seekers? Why do you think there's this different perception between Ukrainians and others? Is it that people just believe Ukrainians are more in need of help right now? There's been several calls have gone out to, to people to house uh, refugees. And these calls have gone out to businesses, hotels, etc., uh, to house refugees in return for payment. And the government has got a pretty healthy response. A lot of people have come forward offering their premises but in the overwhelming majority of the cases, these people have said that they just want Ukrainians. They don't want direct provision uh, applicants. Uh, now, why that's the case, uh, I'm not sure I can say with any conviction. It's possible people are worried about the reaction from local communities. You know, We have seen several instances this year and in, in previous years of local communities getting very upset when asylum seeker accommodation is opened in their location. And that upset is a lot greater when if there, there hasn't been consultation or if they feel that it's been sprung on them. Uh, why are they willing to accept Ukrainians at short notice, though? Well, I'm not sure. Uh, there is a different demographics at play. Ukrainians, I think the, the figure is uh, 60% of Ukrainians are women and children and older people, whereas the uh, direct provision applicants would skew towards younger, kind of young adults and skew towards more male. So maybe there's more sympathy there for Ukrainians. And of course, the war in Ukraine is the still after six months the main news story we're hearing about it every day we're hearing about it suffering uh whereas the people coming from other locations you know from as varied as georgia to syria to eritrea you know there's no single crisis that's kind of dominating the headlines and dominating people's conversations so that could also be playing into it when you were speaking to the Department of Children, how are they dealing with these refusals to take asylum seekers i mean is there really no one that will offer accommodation to people from countries like Eritrea or Yemen, which have dealt with their own war and conflict, or places like Sudan and Pakistan? It's not that there's no one, but it's just that the, the, the vast majority of people who have come forward have, have expressed a, a preference for Ukrainians. And that's not just private companies, you know, that's sports clubs, that's community centres, that's even in some cases uh, state-run premises. It's, it's across the board. So it leaves the government in a very, very difficult position, even though you've got far fewer uh, people in the uh, asylum seeker pipeline. You know, as I said, 15,000 uh, versus 35,000 uh, Ukrainian refugees. The asylum aspect is a far greater challenge for government as they have to scramble around to find alternatives and to move people on from the main accommodation center uh, in city west where they generally go first and which is under huge strain itself there's been reports of people uh, having to sleep on chairs there as well and you know officials i spoke to spoke with a sense of kind of fear about the future and what's going to happen next and and one person i spoke to went so far as to 
say you know we might reach a situation where we're handing out tents you know personal tents to people and saying they'll have to sleep outside uh we obviously in in some locations uh, asylum seekers are sleeping in tented accommodation on the grounds of uh, accommodation centers but these are uh they're still tents but they're 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 quite good uh for tents they're defense forces tents they're quite large they have electricity they have you know solid floors but the prospect has been raised by one person that you know we could be talking about giving someone a a single person tent and and sending them out uh, to sleep outside fiona how optimistic or pessimistic are you about the weeks and months ahead as Ukrainians and asylum seekers continue to arrive in Ireland looking for protection and as we head into what we are expecting will be a harsh winter for everyone? Yeah, I'm quite worried about the situation as we go into the winter months. Um, the war in Ukraine you know, shows little sign of abating, so we can expect that there will continue to be arrivals over the next month. Um, the numbers of people claiming international protection usually peak over the summer, so we can expect uh, those numbers to drop somewhat. And there may be people in direct provision who receive status through the undocumented scheme who may be able to move out as well. So that may also somewhat help there. But, you know, longer term, so long as the state is concentrated on looking at hotel accommodation and congregated settings, it's very difficult to see the situation improving. And what we'd like to see is, you know, a national lead appointed to look at these issues. At this stage, we need the Department of Taoiseach to lead this because the the Department of Children simply doesn't have the levers necessary to create accommodation in the same way that other departments might have added. That's all for today. Thanks to my guests, Connor Gallagher and Fiona Hurley. Today's episode was produced by Suzanne Brennan. In the News will be back on Wednesday.